Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This week, throughout the Jewish world, we are reading from Exodus 21 through Exodus 24, verse 18. The parasha, the weekly portion, is known as Mishpatim. And perhaps my guest and I will chat about how we can translate the word Mishpatim. Uh, let me offer you an overview of this week's parasha. Some of you who listen on a regular basis will know that last week the Israelites stood at Mount Sinai and participated in the revelation, which presented them with what the Hebrew calls Aseret HaDibrod, and which we call in English the Ten Commandments. Following this revelation at Sinai, God legislates a series of laws for the people of Israel. These laws uh, include laws regarding the indentured servant, penalties for murder, kidnapping, assault, and theft, civil laws pertaining to redress of damages, granting of loans, and responsibility of that which the text calls the four guardians and the rules governing the conduct of justice by courts of law. Also included in this week's parasha, Torah portion, are laws warning against mistreatment of foreigners, the observance of the seasonal festivals, the agricultural gifts that are to be brought to the temple in Jerusalem, the prohibition of cooking meat with milk, and the mitzvah of prayer. Altogether, this parasha, known as Mishpatim, contains 53 commandments, 23 imperative commandments, and 30 prohibitions. As the Torah portion continues, God promises to bring the people of Israel to the Holy Land and warns them against assuming the pagan ways of the inhabitants that they will confront. The people proclaim, Na'asev nishma. We will hear and we will do all that God commands us, leaving Aaron and Hur in charge of the Israelite camp. Moses ascends to Mount Sinai and remains there for 40 days and 40 nights. Ostensibly, the Torah tells us to receive the revelation in writing. It is, as you can tell, a Torah portion that is ripe for conversation and ripe for interpretation. With me this morning to discuss our parasha is Rabbi Martin P. Byfield, Jr., who is the Rabbi Emeritus from a Congregation in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Um, he has had a rich rabbinic career serving in the South in the American East Coast and completing his uh, wonderful rabbinic career at Beth Ahaba in Richmond, Virginia. He has taught in numerous universities during his rabbinic career and worked on his PhD in American Jewish history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he has taught 
uh, courses under the auspices of the Jewish Chautauqua Society at Shaw Divinity School and Meredith College. It's a pleasure to invite Rabbi Byfield to speak to us this morning on Jewish faith and Jewish facts. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for that introduction. This is a uh, Torah portion that seems to um, cry out for some conversation. And so let's begin right at the beginning. How do you see this portion in its relationship to that which occurred last week at the Revelation and within the context of the entire Torah? Sure. Um, well, you know, there are, we know that there are lots of ways to understand and appreciate the Torah its, and its contents. Uh, one of the ways that uh, I find very interesting and which I enjoy thinking about um, is, I'll describe it as trying to look at the Torah from 40,000 feet, okay? Uh, there was somebody wrote this uh, or redacted it, however one wants to uh, describe how we got the Torah, uh, even if it was just being written down, but somebody wrote it. And whenever someone puts something together, uh, it has uh, it gets put together with uh, with over overarching reasons and purposes. So when I when I look at the Torah from 40,000 feet. I think I see that last week's parasha is the climax of the Torah. And everything before it leads up to the revelation at Sinai. And everything after leads away from the revelation at Sinai. So last week's Torah portion was the climax. Okay. And and I, and I see that everything leading up to that involves a great deal of, um, of interest in Egypt. Uh, you know, the first, the first 12 chapters, uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis uh, kind of serve as an introduction. But when we start with Abraham, it's hard to read many chapters without getting Egypt involved. Abraham goes to Egypt. Joseph goes to Egypt. Everybody goes to Egypt. And then everybody gets out of Egypt. And where are they going to go? They're going to go to the promised land. But the Torah is not about the promised land. The Torah is about the space in between Egypt and the promised land, which is to say life in the desert. Life in Egypt, all of the decisions for the people were made for them. There wasn't any freedom. They did what they had to do. They did what they were told to do. Um, and off in the distance is this promised land of some wonderful life. But from the Torah's perspective, they never get there. They spent all of their time, all of the time after Sinai, as a people in the desert. So last week when they get the Ten Commandments, and they listen to Moses telling them the 10 things that they've got to do. Uh, and I read this next parasha. I'm sending, I, I'm thinking to myself, it's like Moses saying to the people, you don't really think that there are only 10 things you were going to have to do. do you? 
There's a whole list of things you're going to have to do. We're involved in something that is more than just getting out of Egypt. We're involved in creating something unique, different, special. Some would say holy or sacred, but it's something different. And they're not just 10 things you got to worry about. And, and different from what? Different solely from Egypt or different from that uh, other, con- other community surrounding the Israelites? Well, I think primarily, well, first and foremost, different from Egypt. That's what the people knew. They had been there for hundreds of years. That was really the only thing that they knew. Moses might have been, now I'm just thinking about this as a, as a work of literature. Moses might have been familiar with some, with other, with other peoples. Um, he has contact with, uh, with a really intelligent and helpful, uh, distant family when he gets married. And they're not Egyptians. They're Midianites, but, uh, but the people only know Egypt. But even if it's different from all the other people, yes, it is different. God is different. The requirements are different. And they're meant, I think, to set them. Well, they're, they're there for several, pur- several purposes. One of them is to set them apart, to make them distinctive. We're different from you because we do this, or we do this and this makes us different. It's also meant, I think, to elevate. I mean, People, people are people. Um, And I don't think it matters whether they lived 5,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, or they lived last week. People are people. There are some saints, there are some sinners, but most of us are just ordinary folks. The people who left Egypt were ordinary folks. And, uh, and I think one of the, one of the large stories or one of the large assertions of the Torah is you don't have to be a saint. You don't, and we're not just talking about sinners. We're talking about how ordinary people can do non-ordinary, extraordinary things. And the Torah is asking the Jewish people, the Israelites, to do extraordinary things. It's asking them to elevate their lives, um, to turn ordinary things into something sacred for them. So could you give us an example of how you understand that to uh, ensure that our listeners are uh, following your line of thinking? Sure, sure. Part of what, part of what the Israelites are being asked to do, um, they're, being, they're being inspired to do saintly, to be good. They're inspired to be good. For example, honor your parents. They just heard that last week. Honor your parents, okay? Uh, love your neighbor. They're also being discouraged from doing wrong, from sin. Don't steal. Don't take bribes. And as you mentioned in, the, in our introduction, in this chapter, Moses starts to get down to business. And Moses says, listen, it's not just these 10 things. It's not just generalities. We're going to be very specific about how you elevate your life, and how you make yourselves distinctive, and how you avoid doing wrong. And we're going to tell you what's wrong um, and what's going to happen if you live that way, as well as what's going to happen if you manage to fulfill these requirements. 
the, and, and it's in all of that is in this Torah portion. If they, if they do wrong, there's punishment. If they do good, God's going to have their, God's going to send an angel that's going to, um, you know, go with them and going to protect them. So it's right there. And this is just the beginning of a long, long list of things that the people are going to be asked to do or not to do. So you're suggesting that this Torah portion is the transformative Torah portion um, that expands on this notion of peoplehood. That peoplehood for the Israelites is not uh, simply about their covenantal relationship with God, but it um, involves their covenantal relationship with all who are part of both the Israelite community and those who surround them. Uh, I, I think there's no, to me, there's no question that that's correct. For me, the Israelites uh, constitute do do not constitute only a religious community. Uh, I don't think the ancient Israelites were were just a religious community. I don't think modern Jews are just a religious community. I think. The event at Sinai, which binds the Israelites together to God and themselves. Okay, I think that that's an essential aspect. It's not just saying that the Israelites are being bound to God; they're being bound to one another by this this long list of things that they're expected to do and not do. They're bound to one another. So they're they become they're conceived of as a people or what we would call today a nation. And yes, I, so I think that that's true. I think the Jews are a nation. The Israelites were a nation. And they, the, the, the expectations of this nation involve not just religion, religious uh, prescriptions, but also civil and criminal and cultural expectations that they were expected to live up to. And I think the same thing applies today. And so the Torah portion, as you suggested, lists all these dynamics that bind people together, civil law, uh, criminal law, um, religion, what we would call religious behavior, although we haven't really formally defined what that might be um, and how that would differ. Um, but it is in the Torah portion when we, there are cultural behaviors about what you eat and there are civil behaviors. And they're, all, and they're all mixed up together. Right. And so it's a tapestry of identity. Um, it's not segregated out into this is your religious behavior on uh, one day of the week, but this is your 24-7 behavior that connects you both to the deity and to the peoplehood. Yeah, that's correct. And we also have to remember that they're just people, right? They're ordinary people. And some people are going to be attracted by the requirements for Pesach, uh, Sukkot, and, um, uh, and Shavuot. And some people are going to be attracted by the, 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 the business prescriptions. Some people are going to be attracted by the agricultural requirements. Not everyone is going to have the same balance in their lives. That's one of the things I think that's characteristic of most nations. Different people uh, are, uh, are attracted to 
and find themselves involved with different parts of the national identity. And it's when it's taken together that one appreciates uh, the breadth and significance uh, of the of the entire uh, the entire tapestry, as you call it, because that's what it is. You're suggesting, though, if I hear you correctly, that if one picks and chooses from the grocery list of um, identifiers and chooses one and ignores the other 72, um, not that that's a specific number, but just for our conversation, that that still connects you to the people. So in our Torah portion, if it's true that there are approximately 50 um, statements of behavior, some are positive and some are negative, if you accept three or four of the positives or five or six of the positives and ignore the rest, does that still qualify you for identity purposes? Or is there a minimum that the Torah suggests that you have to affirm? Well, um, I don't think that there is a minimum that the Torah suggests. The Torah lays it all out. Uh, I think I think we do run into trouble if we try to establish the floor um, below which you're not included. Um, I do think that we run into trouble um, because people are people. Uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think belonging to a nation is essentially a voluntary matter. And people either feel a part of the nation or they don't feel a part of the nation. Now, if you, if you are part of the nation, um, there are things that you do or don't do. But it, is, it does seem to be correct here and from the tourist perspective that if you're part of this people and you violate certain things, there, there's, there's responsibility involved and you're going to be held accountable no matter what, no matter whether you think that's fair or not. So just using this Torah portion alone, if you've, if you've got an ox that goes around butting heads with all of the oxen, oxen in the neighborhood, you're going to be responsible for that. And it doesn't matter whether you like that or not. So I think, uh, I think part of, part of, nationality involves power who has the power to enforce to enforce the rules uh and if you're in the if you're in the people um someone some entity is going to have power over you uh to enforce the rules so again if your ox goes around butting heads with it with all the oxen in the neighborhood uh the 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 power can enforce that rule. How do you honor your parents? That becomes a different story. How do you observe the Sabbath? That becomes a different story uh, because there may be different ways of doing that, which are acceptable in the community. And by acceptable, I mean, which still puts you within the, within the ring of of the neighborhood of the of the people so 
as we are, as you're chatting, and of course, um, in 2022, the question of individual liberties is an important question um, throughout the world during this pandemic. And the question of individual liberties is raised in the context of as someone who identifies as a member of a large community nation or a small community, um, am I obligated to cede some of my freedom for the betterment of the entire community? And that seems to be a question which the Torah suggests the answer is pretty clear cut. You do have to cede. The answer is yes, at least within the Israelite nation. And I think within the even contemporary Jewish people, we are we are sometimes asked to sacrifice a personal need or a personal preference for the well-being of our community. Uh, now, I mean, in here in the United States, I mean, we are having a terrible fight over this. Um, and uh, traditionally in the United States, there's been so much so much emphasis on the idea of personal choice, of individuality, of individual, individual, yes, individuation, being an individual and getting and having individual freedom. Um, but we are, we are paying the price for that right now. Um, we, there, to me personally, I think, um, to use this example, uh, that public health uh, supersedes individual choice. Uh, and if someone's individual choice endangers the health of the public, I think that they can, they should be held accountable and responsible. Uh, I'm not sure whether I'm the minority or the majority uh, of that point of view. Um, well, it's certainly better known as an issue in... Uh the United States, but um, I think throughout the world, in every country, there are individuals who challenge the notion of what the nature of uh, belonging means and how belonging may have um, authority over some individual rights. Of course, uh, totalitarianism is uh, authority over all individual rights. Um, so, in our Torah portion, which you've begun to discuss so eloquently about creating peoplehood, there are a number of social issues that the Israelites are commanded to take a particular perspective on. How do you deal with slavery? It kind of accepts that there'll be some sort of slavery. It doesn't say slavery is bad. Uh, maybe a recognition that the Torah didn't have the power in its historic context to um, deal with that, similar to the founders of the United States in the creation of the Constitution, where they ignored that, maybe didn't think they had the power to deal with it um, or the wisdom to deal with it. But there are all these social issues um, that seem to serve as a basis for a um, more liberal worldview that has permeated the Jewish experience. Do you think that's a fair interpretation of the power of this Torah portion? Absolutely. You know, I once had, I once had lunch with 
this was when we moved, and this was after living in Richmond for some time. And I was uh, introduced to someone at lunch who was a, uh, uh, a conservative politician. And he was interested, he, he observed that Jews, at least in the United States, tended to vote for the Democrats and voted for liberal, seemed to support liberal social policies. And he, this more conservative politician, wanted to know how he, why this was the case. Why were Jews liberal? And could he get more Jews to vote for him? Okay. And, and I said, you know, just read, read the, read the five books of Moses and you see that on social event, social, social subject after social issue, Jews seem to be, uh, or the expectation is of Jews to be, uh, on the liberal, more liberal end of the spectrum. So it's no surprise that when people, uh, other people on the liberal end of the spectrum get the support of, of the Jewish people in general. That's not every Jew, but it's certainly, uh, as a group, that's true. And I, and I, and I think it's true. If we're trying to live, trying to be in a world where it's almost like live and let live, as long as you, as long as our life, our lives can be different, we don't all have to do the same thing. If we respect one another, and as long as I'm not interfering with your right to live your life, well, then go ahead and go ahead and do that. But don't expect me to like it, for example. Don't, don't expect me to support it. But I'm not, I'm not going to come and hit you over the head because you disagree with me. And I expect you not to hit me over the head because you disagree with me. So other traditions um, in the Western monotheistic world, which find value in the Torah, um, don't always pursue this liberal line of interpretation. Um, do you have a sense of why that is? Why? Uh, because certain aspects of the Torah become important to other traditions. And here we have this powerful statement of what God wants from people. But while it's true that it's hard to paint, use the singular paintbrush for all people, um, you're correct in suggesting that the Jewish community has usually been identified with liberal perspectives, and um, Christian communities even today have been uh, connected to more conservative perspectives, as have uh, some Muslim communities. Well, let's, but, but let's be fair. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's quite right to paint everybody with the same brush. Um, there are many conservative Jews uh, I mean, by conservative Jews, conservative politically, politics. not religiously. Correct. There are many, many, especially among the more traditional uh, uh, ends of the Jewish spectrum. Uh, they do tend to vote for more conservative uh, candidates because of their positions uh, on social issues. Uh, but also uh, the same in, in Protestant and Catholic Christianity. There are many liberal Protestant and liberal Catholics um, who um, uh, who resemble the way Jews vote. Let's let's put it that way, because they have a more liberal perspective. Um, but remember, I, I don't think we can we can say that 
Jude, the Judaism, the Jews are the same as Christians and Muslims. I mean, Christianity and Islam are religious traditions. They are not peoplehoods or nationalities. They have, they have belief requirements. We don't have that. We emphasize behavior rather than belief. We are going to have to uh, bring this interesting conversation to a close. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Martin P. Byfield, Jr. of Richmond, Virginia. And I want to thank him for sharing his wisdom with me and with you this morning. A podcast of this morning's uh, conversation can be found on iTunes or the chri.ca website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day.